Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today it's part one of the Gospel of John, chapter nine. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome tonight for the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We have had some I am statements. There's seven total in John's Gospel. We've been through two. You'll remember John 6, I am the bread of life. And last week when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. There's also seven signs, seven miraculous signs in John's gospel. I really think there's eight when you count the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's in all the gospels. But after tonight, we'll have done six of these signs. He changed water into wine. He healed the royal official's son. We saw him heal a paralytic at Bethsaida at the pool of Asclepius. We saw him feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. We saw in that same chapter 6, he walked on the water. He's Lord of all creation. And today we're going to see him heal a blind man. Not just a blind man, but a man born blind. That's a big difference. They are coming off the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus is walking along. He saw a man blind from birth. To be blind from birth. Do you know anyone blind from birth? Approximately four out of every 10,000 kids are certified blind by their first birthday. It's really hard to tell if a newborn is blind because newborns are nearsighted. Yeah. And so four out of 10,000, that's pretty rare by the first year. But to be born blind, this man has been blind from birth. Now, if you think of that, imagine that. I said to Steve, should I have them close their eyes and count 30 seconds? He said, no, don't do that. That's hokey. Uh, So just think if you were blind your whole life, you don't know colors. You don't know what anything looks like. You've never seen a face. You've never seen anything. What would that be like? And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Now, these are his own disciples asking this. His disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? that he was born blind. Now, what kind of question is that? The disciples are showing a type of blindness that they have. The disciples are alluding that this man was born blind because either he's a sinner or his parents were great, terrible sinners. They're basically saying righteous people don't have illnesses like this. His disciples asked him who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So they are showing a type of blindness. Thank goodness we don't do this anymore. (laughs) Right? Or do we? Do we ever make this assumption today, make moral judgments based on health issues? Did you hear Nancy has lung cancer? What's the first question people will ask? Oh, yep, she was a smoker. That is so common. Was he a smoker? Mm-hmm. Why do people ask that? One reason is we fear our own mortality. And so we think, hey, I'm not a smoker, so I'm safe, right? I, I, I won't get lung cancer. I don't, I don't do that. So people are making moral judgments. Well, they chose to smoke. That was their choice. 
even though he knew all the medical data. He knew it. His kids had told him for years. He had cirrhosis of the liver. And what do people ask? Is he an alcoholic? Did you hear their son has AIDS? What do they ask? Is he gay? A moral judgment being placed paired with someone's physical illness. And Jesus is telling us today that's wrong. That's wrong, wrong, wrong. Don't do that. Non-smokers can get lung cancer. Non-alcoholics can get cirrhosis. Non-gay people can get AIDS. People make moral judgments based on other people's health. Ah, this is nothing new. Job is wisdom literature in the Bible. There was once a man in the land of us. His name was Job. He was blameless and upright. He feared God. He turned away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him, his house, everything he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, all his possessions. You've increased the land. Sure. But stretch out your hand now, Satan says to the Lord. Stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has. And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well. All that he has is in your power, Satan. Only do not stretch out your hand against him, against his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, is Job still going to love God for no reason? Is he still going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord for no reason? Does Job fear God for nothing? No reason other than God is God and God is great and God is God. Job was the greatest of all people in the East, it says in the scripture. But... Job lost all his property, everything he had. He lost 7,000 sheep. He lost 3,000 camels. He lost 500 yoke of oxen. He lost 500 donkeys. And all his servants, very, very many servants, got killed or captured by the Chaldeans. One servant was still speaking. Another messenger came. Your son and daughters, they were all eating and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came up. Job across the desert struck the four corners of the house and it fell on All the young people, and they're all dead. All 10 of your children are dead. I've escaped alone to tell you. Oh, all 10 of his children. He had lost all 10, seven sons, three daughters dead. All his property, all his animals. And you know what he did? Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and he worshiped God. He said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrongdoing. Bad things can happen to good, holy, righteous people. It's wrong to make moral judgments because of a hardship a person has been dealt. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the face of the earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God, turns from evil, persists in his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason, Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. All that people have, they will give to save their lives. Stretch out your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh, and then he'll curse you to your face, God. (laughs) The Lord said to Satan, very well, he's in your power, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job's body, on his person, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with him to scrape himself as he sat among the ashes. Then his wife, his loving wife, said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die already. But Job said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good? 
of the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He would not curse God because God is God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His friends, his good friends, Alphas came and said, Job has sinned, pointing fingers. Bildad, his other friend, came, Job should repent. And Zophar, his other friend, came, Job's guilt deserves punishment. Nice wife, nice friends. They're making moral judgments about Job. Could reality be that through the sufferings of Job, in the end, God will be magnified and glorified and exalted? Could it be? He has put my family far from me. My acquaintances are wholly estranged from me. My relatives, my close friends have failed me. My guests in my house have forgotten me. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own children. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those who I loved have turned against me. My bones cling to my skin, to my flesh. I have escaped the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me. Have pity on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me, never satisfied with my flesh? Then Job said the most amazing prophetic thing, maybe in the entire Old Testament. But I know that my Redeemer lives and that on the last day he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I will see God on my side. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. He knew the resurrection. Even in the Old Testament, he knew he was going to see the face of God. He knew he would live on. I know my Redeemer lives. There had been no Redeemer yet. Jesus hadn't come yet. How does he know this? He also had insights into the harrowing of Hades. He said, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my release will come. You would call and I would answer you, Lord. Now, Job in this story is surrounded by much moral blindness, but he knows that he knows that he knows that he knows that God is God, and he will not curse him. So back to the disciples of Jesus, beware of judging a person's health as sin. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Wow. Wow. He was born blind, so he will glorify the Lord. He was born blind, so he will magnify the Lord. His life's going to be a living witness. As was Job's in the end. Same thing happened. How about Elizabeth and Zechariah? Both of them were righteous before God. They lived blamelessly according to all the commandments and all the regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. So what did people say? Infertility moral judgments. You know, they must be contraceptive. They don't have children. They're not blessed. Maybe she's had abortions in the past. Maybe she can't conceive. Whatever people think. They don't know. They're passing judgments and it's wrong. Were they sinners? No, they were blameless. Luke has to tell us intentionally so we don't blame them. They're blameless. They're blemish-free before God. But so that God's works might be revealed in them and that God might be glorified, this old barren couple bears the forerunner to the Messiah, the final, second to the final prophet, John the Baptist. God's work was revealed in them and through them. 
through their infertility. Jesus says to the man born blind, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. He didn't care if it's a Sabbath. We got to do this now. We got to do the work of him who sent us. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus has to do the work of God even on Sabbath. We can't take the next breath unless he allows us to. We must do God's work wherever Christ is present because we're part of Christ now. Christ is the head. We're the body. We're the church. His body on earth. The light has gone. He's gone back up to the Father. Now we have to be the light. Now we, our hands and our feet, have to be those of Christ. Wherever Christ is, there's the light. There's the day. There's the time to do God's work before it's night, before we die. We only have a finite time on earth to do his work, to spread his love, to give his message. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Notice it's plural. We. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. When I'm gone, you guys are it. Don't put your light under a bushel. He's still in the world through us, with us, in us. Now, when he had said this, he spat on the ground, Jesus did, and made mud with saliva. And he spread the mud on the man's eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which meant sent. Then he went and he washed and he came back able to see. He who had never, ever, 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 ever seen anything but pitch blackness can see. He has new eyes. Remember what Jesus said. He was born blind so God's work might be magnified in him that he might glorify God. Now, all things were created through Jesus, through the word. God spoke the word and all things were created. Now, in Christ, all things must be recreated because now he's an incarnate word. He's a word made flesh. He's come to dwell with us. And many of the early church fathers thought that this pre-incarnate Christ who created Adam, God created Adam through his word. Now, Adam is separated. Now, a new Adam has to come, and he has to recreate. And he has to recreate, and you'll get this in just a minute. Following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we call Jesus the firstborn of a new creation. And he has restored a recreated new humanity in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We learned in Revelation, Jesus, the one seated on the throne, said, See, I am making all things new. John, write these words down. They're trustworthy and true. So Jesus is giving us a foretaste in this story of a new creation that he's about to do. Some church fathers assumed that the blind man had no eyes, no eyeballs. Christ finished the act of creation in this man. He recreates him. He forms eyes out of dirt and saliva making this mud, this is what he made the first Adam with, the first man out of earth, dust and water. Now he's going to make dust and water and make new eyes for this new man, a new creation. Christ literally became light for this man, granting him sight. With my eyes I shall see God, Job said. This man's going to see God. Christ literally brought about a new creation in him. 
The spittle of Jesus' breath would be this liquid breath. The God breathed life into Adam, into the dust with the spittle and breath, the moisture, and he turned the dust into clay. Now go wash in the pool of Siloam, these living waters of the pool of Siloam. This will be a type of baptism, a new creation in the Trinity. You'll remember when he healed in John 5, also on a Sabbath, it was at the pool of Asclepion, Bethsaida, and he did not, he told the man, you want to be made well? Remember that? And Jesus said, stand up, take your mat and walk. He doesn't use a drop of that water. That's pagan water. There's no washing. There's no baptismal thing. It's just get up your mat and go. Get out of here. But this time, Jesus makes this mud out of his own saliva and dust. And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Go wash. And the man did, and he received his sight. Now, what is this pool of Siloam? It's fed by the waters of the Gihon Spring. Gihon, in Hebrew, means gush forth. It was a name given to a spring that served as the primary water supply for Jerusalem. But before that, in Genesis 2, all the way back to the first creation, there are four rivers that flow out of Eden. And they are four branches. The first is Pishon. The second is Gihon. This one, to gush forth. It's right there in the Garden of Eden. The third is the Tigris, and the fourth is the Euphrates. Now, in the Basilica in San Clemente in Rome, I could sit in front of that for half a day and just look at this new creation. Jesus is the tree of life, and his cross crushes a snake. And from that snake, there's four rivers coming out. Those four rivers back in the new, this is the new creation. And you'll see the four rivers at the bottom. Those are the four rivers that were there in Genesis 2. One is Gihon. And Psalm 42, you see the deers drinking from this living water. And it says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living water. When shall I come and behold the face of God? That's all man has ever wanted, to behold the face of God. Also, this water in the pool of Siloam is what was used in the anointing of King Solomon. Oil and water from the springs of Gihon. King David said to his servants, take my son Solomon, have him ride my own mule and take him down to Gihon. And that is where the people paraded to anoint Solomon to make him king after his father David. We're just coming off the Feast of Tabernacles. We also saw them take living water from the pool of Siloam in the seventh month for seven days. On the seventh day, the endless day, they had the huge water libation where living water was flowing from the temple. In the time of the Assyrians, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom in 722 BC, but they had already conquered the northern kingdom, and King Hezekiah of Judah stopped the course of the Gihon and brought it straight down to the city of David, to Jerusalem, to cut off the water supply from the Assyrian army and to redirect it to the city of David, to Jerusalem. Hezekiah was a good king, and he prospered in all his works. So that's the pool this man is being asked to wash in, a pool of living water, a pool of the living God. Now, there's another type of blindness in this chapter, the neighbors. The neighbors are going to show a very, uh, a second type of blindness. The neighbors and those who had seen the blind man before as a beggar began to ask, well, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he, and others were saying, no, 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 that's not him, it's someone like him. So they're blind. They've been seeing this guy for years, and they don't recognize him. They're blind. They don't know who it is. 
And he says, I am the man. I am Adam. I am Adam. I am the man. He keeps saying, I am the man. I am the man. And the neighbors are showing a type of spiritual blindness. They've seen him every single day. They've tripped over him on their way to the synagogue. They've stumbled into him or he stumbled into them. Are they blind now? He can see. So they're showing a type of blindness. Why the mud? Mud equals the dust and water. And that very first human to ever walk the earth, Adam, the Torah explains his name. The Hebrew word for earth is Adama. God formed man from the dust of the earth on the simplest level. The connection with Adama and earth is the basis for man's name. We are formed out of the earth. And once Adam sinned and ate the forbidden fruit, he introduced death into the world. And the world was sentenced to once again return to the earth where it came from, where God had created him out of. So this Hebrew wordplay on Adam and earth and ground, they're unmistakable. Into the earthen vessel, the vessel of Adam, God breathed the breath of life, we're told in in Genesis 2-7. This is a very vivid intimacy between man and God. He breathes over his nostrils his own breath, the breath of God. This is something the animals do not get. Through him, through Jesus, all things were made. This is a recreation. This is a new man with mud and saliva on his eyes. In Genesis, we get a creation account in Genesis 1. Then did you ever notice there's a recreation account in Genesis 2? There's two creation stories. In Genesis 2, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven, when there was no plant of the field that was yet the earth, no herb, nothing had sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Adam, from the dust of the ground, God formed him with this water that was there. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. You've got this water and this dust, and and the Lord God, the potter, the master potter, is forming the clay. God formed man from the dust of the ground, from the dust of the ground, God formed him. And then God himself breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life. That's what scripture says. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the man became a living being. Now we notice that God did not breathe into the animals. The animals were created on the same day as man, day six. But God did not breathe into their nostrils, only into man. Man is above, man is king of creation over the animals. He has dominion over them. God did not breathe into the nostrils of the animals. So I'm sorry, Fido does not have a soul. (laughs) As much as you love him, God did not breathe into him like he did to you. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I like this depiction because I see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity breathing into him. The breath of life, his soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God made grow every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God formed Adam's body out of the earth, out of the dust. 
And God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of his own divine life because he wanted to share his life with man. It's the first sentence in the catechism. And man gets a body and a soul. The breath of God is his soul, and he gets a body. But they're not two different things, and this is so important to understand. Catechism 365, the unity of soul and body is so profound that one has to consider the soul to be the form of the body. Not two natures united, but rather their union forms a single nature. And by death, the soul is separated from the body. That's why we're so scared to die. It's not natural. They're always together. They're one thing. And at death, they separate. The soul is separated from the body. But in the resurrection, God will give incorruptible life to our body, transformed by reunion with our soul. That's why we say we look forward to the resurrection of the body, because we're going to get our soul reunited. Adam was created from water and dust, and now because of sin, Adam or mankind will have to know death. They will have to know death. St. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. Now we have to know death. We have to. The curse is that our bodies are going to go back down into the earth and return to dust says it right there in Genesis, the curse of Adam. You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken your dust, and unto dust you will return. That's the curse. That scares us. Our soul's going to separate from our body. We say it on, on Ash Wednesday. Remember, man, that you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. Don't go to the other line that doesn't say that. Go to that line. Because <laughs> that's what we need to know. We're dust, and we're going to return to dust. Our soul separates from our body at death. That's why we hate death. We're scared of it. Our body goes down into the earth and eventually decays and turns back into dust. And everybody walks away and our life on earth is over. And we turn back into dust. And that's it. That's it. Right? No, that used to be it. That's what it was until he came and made a new creation and recreated us. He's the new Adam. He's the firstborn son of a new creation. That's why we have hope, Catholics. That's why we say that every single Sunday at Mass and everyone just rambles through it and doesn't even know what it means. That used to be it. Used to be very dismal. That was it. Until Jesus Christ ushered in the Father's greatest blessing and reversed the greatest curse known to man. He reversed it. The new Adam, Jesus Christ, conquered sin on the cross. He crushed it. And then when he rose from the dead, the new Adam conquers death and he busts through the grave, destroys death. Oh, death, where's your sting now? That's what Paul says. The curse, the ultimate curse is turned into a blessing. Death that used to separate us from God is now the only way we can get back to God. We got to die. That's the avenue to get back to the Trinity. Death is good now. See how much hope? You can't get back to the fullness of God and the perfection of His love unless you die. That was part one of the Gospel of John, chapter nine, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.